Today, we are going to be starting a new series. Um, we try to do this every year. Uh, it's a series we do on the four pillars of the church. And uh, those pillars are, does anyone know them other than you? <laughs> Centrality of Christ, family of faith, sufficiency of scripture, and love where you live. And we've done it, I think this is the third, third series we've done on these. Um, and uh, this year, we're going to try to be doing them entirely out of the Psalms. Um, and we believe that these four pillars are important because they're actually woven throughout all of Scripture. Uh, and as you read through the Bible, through not just the history, but also the teachings uh, and just the, the overall, like, sort of lessons uh, in Scripture, all four of these pillars can be found. So like I said, this year we're going to be looking at them primarily through the Psalms. And today we're starting with the first pillar, which is the centrality of Christ. And so we're going to look at what the Psalms, which are a collection of Psalms, of songs written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, we're going to look at what those have to tell us about who Jesus Christ is. And the Psalms are unique in the Bible in that they are a collection of songs, about 150, um, and it's the only book of the Bible that is just all songs that many. Uh, and it's pretty incredible. You can read through them, and they do things that you don't really see in a lot of other books of the Bible, which is each Psalm is mostly self-contained, uh, and so the truths they present are kind of short and concise, but at the same time, incredibly important, but they're communicated in like simple and straightforward ways because they're so kind of self-contained. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, uh, please turn with me to Psalm 22. And that's where we're going to get started this morning. We'll read a little bit of that and then pray and then uh, dive into it. As you find Psalm 22, some of you may recognize the opening lines of this Psalm, which says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, the first lines of Psalm 22 were quoted by Christ as he hung on the cross. And I'm not sure that quoted is actually the right word for something that was written prophetically to be said by someone hundreds of years later, um, which is true. Psalm 22, when it was written, God, of course, knew that Christ would be using these words from the cross uh, hundreds of years later. And so we're going to start there today. We're not going to start at verse 1. We're going to go to verse 14 uh, and read all the way through verse 18. So Psalm 22, verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. So these are weighty words uh, in the Psalms, especially as you look forward to, to Jesus quoting the first uh, verse of this Psalm. So let's pray and, uh, and ask God to be with us today during this time. Thank you, Lord, that we are able to gather this, uh, this afternoon, this morning, uh, to look through your word, to sing songs of worship. Be with us in these moments, Father, as we look at the Psalms. Uh, and We look at what you have to tell us, Father, about who Jesus Christ is. Be with me, Father. Uh, don't let me say anything wrong. Please let me say what you would have me to say to people. Um, open all of our hearts and our ears, Lord, mine included, to what you have here. Um, thank you for this time again, Lord. Uh, we don't take it for granted, maybe in, uh, in ways that I used to. Um, so be with us during this time, Lord, open our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. amen. 
So as we see in Psalm 22, uh, God spoke prophetically to his people and they wrote down and recorded things that were not just meant for them during that time. Of course, they they were meant for them during that time, uh, but they were also meant for future times. Uh, And we can see that in Psalm 22 there as we read the words that Christ would be quoting. The Psalms, just like the rest of scripture, are intended to not only be for that time, but also to be a more full and complete look at a future truth, which was the coming of the Messiah. And during our time today, we're going to focus on the person of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. And we're going to do that primarily through several different Psalms. And we'll use other scriptures to sort of flesh these out, but we're going to be based in the Psalms. And to be clear, the Psalms that we're reading today aren't Psalms that someone decided later could be about Christ. Like they read them and thought, well, this kind of fits into Christ. That's not, that's not what we're going to be reading. Uh, these are Psalms that were inspired by God and recorded by man and expressly written with the intent of prophetically anticipating Jesus Christ. And the way we know this is that the Bible tells us. And in many cases, Jesus himself actually tells us that these holy scriptures were written about him. So it's not that the Psalms were later discovered to be about Jesus. So keep that in mind kind of as we read through these. Um, And like I said, it's incredible, as we'll see here in a minute, that Jesus himself references the Psalms and in many cases says, these are about me. And we're going to start today with one of those Psalms. And you don't necessarily need to turn there because we're going to spend most of our time in Matthew, which is where Jesus uh, is sort of explaining the psalm to us. But the psalm itself is Psalm 110, and I'm just going to read the first two verses here before we turn to Matthew. So Psalm 110, verse 1, says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So Jesus is going to use this psalm, Psalm 110, to communicate a very important truth about himself. In Matthew 22, Jesus is in the process of revealing exactly who he is, and that's where we're going to be turning here, Matthew 22. Jesus is speaking to a group of Pharisees, and he knows they know the Old Testament, and he knows they know that psalm that we just read. Most of them probably have large portions of the Old Testament memorized. But in this conversation, he's going to ask them a question that goes deeper than just having something memorized, deeper than having read something. So turn with me to Matthew 22, verse 41. So here, uh, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees uh, during this sort of time. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So Jesus is asking here, how is it that King David would call his own son Lord? The Pharisees don't necessarily have an answer to this, but it's clear. It says, the Lord said to my Lord. And the Hebrew word used here is Ladoni, which is similar to Adonai, It's not Adonai, but it is translated as Lord, uh, and elsewhere it's translated as Master. So the question Jesus is asking here is, why would King David call his own son Lord and Master? The Pharisees knew that the Christ would come from the lineage of David. This is taught throughout Scripture. 2 Samuel says that David's descendant would be given a kingdom that would be everlasting. And so the Jewish people at this time were looking for the Christ to be a great leader who would lead their people out of the bondage of the Roman Empire, out of all bondage, really, out of all the bondage that the Israelites had seen, and to establish Israel 
as one of the greatest kingdoms on earth, on the, as the greatest kingdom on earth, one which would be led by the Messiah. That's what the Jewish leaders were looking for, someone who would make Israel the most powerful nation on earth. And what Jesus is saying here to the Pharisees by quoting this psalm is that there is more to the Messiah than just a man who would rule the nation of Israel as a traditional leader might rule a traditional nation. There's something deeper here than just someone who will establish an earthly kingdom for God. Jesus is saying that this psalm is about him, and he's calling attention specifically to the fact that David calls him Lord. And so what Jesus is teaching us here is that, yes, he is the son of David. The Christ is the son of David, just as the scriptures taught, but the Christ is also the son of God. He is Lord, which is not something the Pharisees were expecting to hear. Jesus is both son of David and Lord, which is why David in this psalm calls him that. The truth is Jesus is not just the son of David, but the son of God, and that exists in parallel to what the Jewish people were expecting, which is that Jesus would be a man, the son of David. They were expecting the Messiah to be a great leader, but still just a man. But Jesus, as the son of God, is more than any man could ever be. As the son of God, his will actually is the will of God. It's the same. Jesus says in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And if you might think that that verse was meant to be taken metaphorically, that Jesus meant it metaphorically, the Jewish people listening to him at that time didn't think it was metaphorical because they picked up rocks to throw at him and stone him. And they even accused him of committing blasphemy. They said, you yourself, a man, make yourself God. So when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he was making a very clear statement. Him, he and God are one and the same. And in doing this, Jesus doesn't give us the option of setting him off to the side as another great teacher or even a prophet or maybe even just a really nice guy who was trying to undo the tyranny of religion at that time. He doesn't allow us to fit him into that box because he says, I and the Father are one. And this is critical because this means that Jesus is not just central to salvation. It means he's actually central to all of existence. Nothing that exists was created apart from him. And in fact, the Bible tells us clearly that all things that were created were created through him and for him. God says in Isaiah 43.10, Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And John 1 says in the beginning that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So when you think about these two together, and the rest of the scriptures, it means that Jesus Christ has existed eternally, uncreated. Jesus Christ was with God in the beginning, and he is God. And that means that as the son of God, he is in perfect unity and completeness with God. I was praying with my oldest son a few weeks ago, who's three. He's actually right back there through the window. And uh, at that age, I'll sort of, when we pray before bedtime, I'll pray, or I'll ask him what he wants to pray about, and then he'll kind of repeat it back sort of as I say it. Um, and at some point, he's learned that Jesus is the Son of God and Jesus is God. He's heard both of those two things from us at some point or another. And I was closing the prayer by saying, thank you, God, for your son, Jesus. And so my son repeated it back, and he said, thank you, Jesus, for your son, Jesus. <laughs> and then he looked at me, and he kind of smiled because he knew he had said something that sounds funny. But the point is, is that children at that age, they just accept things at face value, regardless of how complex the thing might be, regardless of how confusing it might be to us as adults. And of course, this means that a child might accept something that's not true 
or something that's impossible. But there is something incredibly beautiful about the fact that a child would accept something that's true, but so complex, like the Trinity. And to a child, that thing, like in the example of my son, is no more worth questioning than how the toaster makes toast. He doesn't understand how it works, but that doesn't stop him from believing it. Jesus says in John 8 that Abraham has seen him, and the Jews who heard Jesus say this were very confused by that. They said to him, you're not even 50 years old, and yet you've seen Abraham? And Jesus responds and says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And Psalm 10, which we read, says that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus is reaffirming him here when he says, before Abraham was, I am. The Jewish leaders understood exactly what Jesus meant by that, because they knew in Exodus 3, verse 14, when Moses was talking to God, Moses asks God, who should I, who should I say sent me? And God says to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am is the name God has given us for himself because I guess how else could the creator and sustainer of all of existence describe himself? He just is. Nothing created or lower than him can define him. And so when Jesus says before Abraham was, I am, it was perfectly clear what he was saying. And once again, they picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus is communicating that as the eternal and uncreated son of God, he and the father are one. There's no separation between them. And the incredible thing about that statement is that it was coming from the mouth of a man. It was a man saying it, someone who physically probably looked not too dissimilar from us standing here. He was a physical man saying before Abraham was, I am. The prophet Daniel in the sixth century BC wrote down a vision he had of someone called a son of man. So this is about 600 years before Jesus walked the earth. And Daniel says that the vision was deeply alarming to him. And likely that's because in this vision, there was someone seemingly separate from God being worshiped by all peoples on earth, being given glory by all people on earth. Let's actually read this. It's in Daniel chapter seven, verse 13. So here, Daniel's talking about his vision. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. So Daniel's watching this son of man being presented to the ancient of days, as he calls him, to Yahweh. And it sounds like it's in some sort of ceremony or event, but it's interesting that it doesn't say that this son of man was, was born or created. It says he just came out of the clouds of heaven and was presented before God. And then what happened next had to have been really shocking to Daniel, or at least it would have been to me, which is that it says that he saw him being served and worshiped and given glory by all people on earth. And he said that this vision alarmed him and made him anxious, which is understandable because he was watching a man being worshiped in a way that only God should be worshiped. And he was probably wondering, how is this happening? How, how could any man be worthy of receiving worship, being given glory by all peoples on earth, if he's just a man? And of course, we know now that the incredible way that this was happening was because that Jesus Christ is not only the Son of God, but he also became 
a mortal man. And when Daniel says that he sees someone like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, he was seeing Jesus. And we know this because Jesus in Matthew 26, when he was on trial and about to be put to death, says to the high priest, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, which is exactly what Daniel saw. Daniel's vision was one of Jesus being worshiped by all peoples and being given the gift of an eternal kingdom. And these things were being given to Jesus because of his dual role as son of God and son of man. And I don't think Daniel would have been as alarmed if he just saw God being worshiped in a vision. That's probably nothing alarming about that. But he saw a man being worshiped in a vision, which is important for us to understand that Jesus was the son of God, but he was also the son of man. He was both fully God and fully man at the same time. He descended from heaven and incarnated into flesh and was born to a woman just like every one of us was. And Psalm 8 actually describes this dissension and reaffirms to us the dual nature we're talking about of Jesus as son of God and son of man. Um, So you could turn to Psalm 8 or you can turn to Hebrews 2 because once again, we're gonna let the Bible interpret the Bible for us. And in uh, Hebrews 2 verse 6, uh, this is the author of Hebrews uh, quoting and sort of explaining Psalm 8 to us. So Hebrews 2 verse 6 says, it's been testified somewhere And this is Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So Psalm 8, quoted through Hebrews here, says that the Son of Man was for a little while made lower than the angels. This means that he was up high, and then he was made low. He entered into this world from the right hand of God and became a man. And as a man, he suffered the same things that all of us suffer. He faced hardship. He faced temptation. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He argued with people face to face. People insulted him. But despite all of this, Jesus did something that none of us has ever done. In fact, he did something that no man has ever done. He never once sinned. He is the only man who has ever succeeded in perfectly living up to the promise of what all men were meant to be, of what Adam was meant to be. In fact, the Bible calls Jesus the last Adam. But Adam sinned. He chose the created thing over the creator and he put his own desires above God. And this is the same thing that I do and the same thing that all of us do every day. It's the same thing that everyone's done throughout all of history, except for one person. Jesus was not an angel or some heavenly being. He was a man just like us, and he was called the Son of Man for that. And for us, apart from him, every breath we take is used to fuel our rebellion against God. It's used to sin. Apart from Christ, And you all know this, we spend our lives prioritizing ourselves above others. We say hurtful things to other people. Uh, We lie to make things easier for ourselves. And yet, for Jesus, it was different. Every breath he took was a moment of perfect worship of God. Every step he took in his entire earthly life never strayed once from the path that God had laid out for him, even when that path led to death on a cross. 
Every word he ever spoke, every thought in his mind, ever, every thought in his mind was in perfect harmony with all things holy and righteous. And he is everything we were meant to be. He's the promise of us fulfilled. As Psalm 8 said, because of this, because he lowered himself down to us in this way and became a man, the ultimate son of man, and because of the death he suffered, he is crowned with glory and honor. But despite Jesus being this faultless servant of God and being the son of God and having all authority in heaven and on earth, he chose a path on earth of rejection. Psalm 118 verse 20 says, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So what does this mean? That the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Later in the psalm, it goes on to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we know that the stone being talked about here is a he, it's the same he who comes in the name of the Lord. And with this psalm, we can again have the cornerstone explain to us what this psalm is talking about. So if you want to turn to Luke 20, verse 13, in these verses, Jesus is using a parable to expand on what this psalm is saying. And we're going to pick up partway through this parable, which is about a master of a vineyard who has tenants caring for the vineyard. And despite the master being the owner of the vineyard, the tenants are treating him really terribly. They're acting like they own the vineyard. So we're going to pick up in verse 13, and we'll read through verse 19 of Luke 20. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then, and this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he, Jesus, looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So the chief priests and the scribes were not happy that Jesus was clearly identifying not only who he was, but he was also identifying their motivations. He was making this public and obvious to them that he knew what their motivations were. And in this parable, Jesus is describing himself as the cornerstone, the most important part of the building, the part around which every other part of the building finds its place. Jesus was saying that apart from him, Nothing else has a place. What was angering the listeners of this parable specifically was that Jesus was saying that in his role as the cornerstone, acceptance of him was acceptance of the Father, and that if anyone rejected him, the Father would reject them. Regardless of their cultural history or their status in society, and in their minds, in the Pharisees' minds, they were the religious leaders of that day. They ran the religion, they ran the temples, they ran the sacrifices at the temples. They held services for worship. They memorized scripture. They were the leaders in that day of their religion. But they had taken God's words and God's commandments, and they had reinterpreted them and added to them and twisted them. Just like many do today, they had created their own version of who God was. And they were ultimately sinners, just like us, 
sinners in need of salvation. And so when Jesus was describing himself as the cornerstone, what he was saying was that God was building something. He was building a temple of salvation. And at the same time, Jesus was saying that there was no way for anyone to be saved apart from him as this temple of salvation. And the son in the parable came to the tenants, and when the tenants rejected him, they were destroyed. Jesus doesn't mince words when he talks about himself being this cornerstone. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And when the scribes and the priests heard this message of exclusivity, they had two reactions, and they're the same reactions we hear today. First, they said, no, we refuse to accept this. This is not true. And second, they wanted him to stop saying it. Just telling them he was wrong wasn't enough. They wanted him to stop saying that he was the only way to God. Luke says that they sought to lay hands on him that very hour, and the only reason they didn't was because they feared for their own safety. They wanted to kill him to stop his, his teaching, which said that rejecting him, rejecting Jesus is rejecting God. But how does this happen? How does Jesus, the son of God, the son of man, become this cornerstone, this cornerstone of salvation? This is possibly the most important question that anyone could ever ask. And the answer to this question is not simply that it's because Jesus was the son of God and he lived a perfect life. That's not the entire answer. For the answer of how Jesus became the cornerstone, and ultimately, it really is a question of why we must believe on Jesus to be saved. We're going to turn back to Psalm 22, which we read earlier. As you recall, this is the psalm that Jesus quoted as he hung on the cross. And this time we'll start with verse 1, uh, and we'll read through verse 8. So verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He who tr he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Psalm 22 is, some, is the prayer of someone who came to be known at that time as the suffering servant. And in this prayer, this servant is both fully committed to God, but also feeling abandoned into the hands of the men who were murdering him. Men who, it says in verse 16, had pierced his hands and feet and were casting lots to decide who gets his clothes. It wasn't until that moment that Jesus hung on the cross after his hands and feet had had nails punched through them and after the Roman guards had cast lots to see who got his clothes and Jesus started to recite Psalm 22. It wasn't until that moment that God fully revealed to the world that Jesus was the suffering servant we read about in Psalm 22. And not just in Psalm 22, but Isaiah 53 as well, which gives a very detailed account of both the physical and the spiritual events that were occurring to the suffering servant, to Jesus, when he was being crucified. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Upon him, Isaiah says, God laid the iniquity of us all, and by his wounds we are healed. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 explain how Jesus Christ, Son of God and Son of Man, became the cornerstone of salvation. All we like sheep have gone astray, it says, and have turned to our own ways. And for this supreme rejection of the creator God, the infinite matchless God, a price must be paid. And the blood of animals used by the Hebrews in past times was never intended to cover this level of ultimate treason. It wasn't enough. An apology isn't enough. No judge would be considered righteous if every time a fine was due for a crime, he just let the criminal skip the fine if they apologized. He might be considered merciful, but not just. A penalty must be paid for the sins that we commit if we want to be righteous before God. And this payment, and this is important, this payment must be equal in value to that of the infinitely valuable God against whom we've dishonored with our sin. And this is why Jesus chose the path of rejection and suffering. It wasn't despite the fact that he was the son of man and the son of God. It was because of these things. And as the eternal son of God and the sinless son of man, as he lay there dying on a cross, bleeding and suffocating to death, never before had such a sacrifice been made. Never before had the blood of someone so surpassingly worthy been shed. And it was that infinitely valuable blood that ransomed us from our sins against an infinitely valuable God. This was the only way to atone for our sins. We can't become righteous on our own. The only way for us to make a payment for our sins is to let Jesus do it for us and then to put on his righteousness. The only way is for Jesus to get what we deserve willingly. He willingly accepted what we deserved and for us to get what Jesus earned. This is why he shed his blood and died on the cross. And when we accept this and we make him the greatest treasure in our lives, his sacrifice, his perfect blood pays for every sin we've ever committed, every sin we will ever commit, past, present, and future. And the Psalms teach us that Jesus is the son of God and the son of man, and that he was rejected by men and in doing so became the cornerstone of salvation. And as we begin to close here, it's important to point out that Psalm 18 says that this is marvelous in our eyes. The Psalm says this hundreds of years before Jesus actually died on the cross. And it's true, what God has done for us is marvelous. God's love shown to us through Jesus Christ is why we sing and worship. It's why we're here. It's why Nikki and McKenzie sing songs. It's why we have the Psalms, because of what God did for us on the cross through Jesus Christ. And we're going to do that now. We're going to sing and worship. And as we sing, think about this sacrifice that was made for you and for me. Jesus Christ is so worthy that songs are being written about him hundreds of years before he was ever born. As we read today in the Psalms. And because of this sacrifice, because of what he's done for us, we can only respond by making him the center of our lives. It was a perfect sacrifice. The son of God, the son of man, 
Never before had anyone so worthy shed their blood. We can only respond by treasuring him and worshiping him, by using every day to worship God in spirit and in truth, in word and thought, in action and in song. So let's close in prayer now, and then Nikki and Mackenzie are gonna lead us in a song of worship. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for what you did for us, Lord. It's so easy to say, and it was such a monumental and for us unimaginable thing, Father, that you would come down in the flesh, Father, in the form of Jesus, Father, your only son, and sacrifice yourself for us, Lord, while we were still sinners. Thank you, Father, for this. Help us to think about it every day when we wake up, when we go to bed, throughout the day, Father. Help us to devote our lives to you, Lord. You deserve nothing less, Father, than our eternal worship, Lord. And we gladly give it to you, Father. Thank you that we are only able to even do it because of what you did for us. We love you, Father. And we will sing now, Lord, and we'll sing forever to you. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.